Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. We are pleased to have you here with us. We're thankful that the Lord is with us. And boy, as you sang that last song, when our faith becomes sight, boy, that sort of thing just inspires you to continue with the grit that he gives you through his Holy Spirit to continue to do his work until we see him face to face. What a great promise, something that should motivate us and should help us to continue in the faith. Before I pray for us, if you'll do me a favor, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And you're thinking, wait a minute, you told us you got a two-part series on the next five verses. We'll get to Galatians chapter 2, but I'd like you to do me a favor. And I think it's more than a favor. This is what I believe God wants us to do this morning. Well, I know it is because it's in his word, so I know he wants us to do it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me, and I'd like to help us center ourselves if we could. I think that's a good idea. We know what we're here for this morning, I think. Well, I hope you do. I pray you do. We're here to worship the Almighty God. We're here to hear from Him, hear what He has to say, apply that to our lives, and become more like Him. For some of you, you're here today to hear the gospel and so be saved. That grace is going to be bestowed on you through your faith in Christ. That is going to happen to some. But I think this is a great verse two verses to help us recenter ourselves for this week, for this day, and for this moment that God has for us. In our first hour, Isaiah referenced Hebrews chapter 11 in the great cloud of witnesses. People who went through some very difficult things in their walk with Christ, as you will, as you have, and some this week. And after this set of verses, this great cloud of witnesses, this hall of faith, the ups and downs of walking with the Lord, I'd like you to see what, what God has to say to us in verse 1. Look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is us today, let us also lay aside every weight. Every weight. Put it all aside. And sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, this morning, for you, for me, right here, looking to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. Not me, not the words that I say beyond his word, but Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That should center us. That is what we're here for today. Fix your eyes on Jesus as we study his word and continue to learn from the incredible eternal words found in, his, in, in the, the book to the Galatians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We do dedicate this time to you. And you do hold us fast. We know that that is true. Our own sins and failures, we can't count on them. Our own decisions, we can't count on them. Our own ideas, we can't count on them. People around us, we can't count on them. We can count on you. Your word is true. Your precepts are beautiful and true. What you've desired for our lives, those of us who are in Christ, is, is true, eternal life. But life right now, life lived for the King, a new life as we'll hear today, a life not motivated to earn salvation, but because of salvation. I pray that we see this today as we study your word. Bless this time with us. We thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So, this week, as we go to Galatians chapter 2, and I'd like you to turn there with me, we'll have to do just a second of review. I don't want to go too far into review, because you may have noticed that last week I went 45 minutes on two verses. So we can't do that again today. But we do have to recap it for just a moment. We have to look at it. And the reason we have to look at it is because we got to remember what it is we're talking about. This is Paul's doctrinal defense of what he said to Peter. And truth be told, Barnabas and others who were listening, that we must never attach anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we established last week that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is all that there is. Let me repeat it. That justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is all that there is in your life and in mine. That is all. And so we went through scriptures last week, understanding that more thoroughly, understanding the price that was paid, the reason it had to be paid, and then our response to it. And a challenge, if you recall, from Paul to say, I implore you, I implore you that you believe in this, that you understand this. That was last week. But Paul continues this doctrinal argument to Paul, to Peter, rather, Barnabas, and others, and the Judaizers who were there defending this false doctrine. And keep in mind, I think many of these men were believers that were misunderstood, that were or misunderstanding the gospel, that had deviated. And we all can do that. I've done that. I've caught myself in that, where I will invent something that is not biblically true. Uh, I think we need to be careful about that. That's why the Word of God is so critical in our lives. And then this unity with Christ and what that looks like to continue this defense and why legalism is such, such a travesty for any of us to consider. So let's reread these passages. I have verse 17 up here, but I want to reread 15 to give us context. But we'll be focusing on 17 through 21. Follow along in your, word, your Bible as I read. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, in Christ, justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For, I rebuild what I, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We will attack these verses this week, and we'll listen to these words this week, and we'll understand a greater understanding. You may remember I used a Spurgeon quote last week that I think is fitting to, to reset ourselves again. Here's what Spurgeon said about this. Saving faith is an immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, which we will talk about today, and eternal life by virtue of God's grace, all spinning and circling and pivoting around God's grace. And you may remember I used this passage. We heard reference to these, these sorts of words this morning in hour number one. 
Paul to the Roman church says this and to you today, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We're going to hear this today. We're going to see this today, and it's important. The righteousness of God, the imputed righteousness of God heard in the first hour, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, paying that necessary ransom to free you. You're no longer a slave of sin. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Again, we heard that word in first hour, this satisfying of the offense to his holiness, his wrath that was due us, the mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. So that's what sets us up for verse 17. We look at that and we, we of course, can't skip that or not remind ourselves of it because that's what it's based on. But now Paul continues this argument in verse 17 and understanding this required verse 15 and 16. So let's look at verse 17 again. Let me reread that passage. And this question is brought up to us by Paul in this particular passage, 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor, and I'll bring it up on the screen in two different ways, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is he a messenger of sin? Is he a minister of sin, you may have said? It could say in your translation. Is that what we're deciding on? Is that what we're considering? This is kind of a tough passage when we consider this. Now, I'm assuming if you're in Christ, you're thinking, I agree with Paul on may it never be. Of course not. Absolutely not. But he's proposing this question. He's posing it to us because there were people really struggling with the idea that, wait a minute, if grace is what it's all about, grace is unmerited favor. Grace means that I don't have to work for it. Grace means I don't actually have to follow the law to be saved. So does that mean because God wants to show more grace, he wants me to sin more? See the logical way that people can go? Or it gives them an out. It gives them this consideration. Here's what Paul's trying to argue for us. Here's what he's saying. Paul's arguing that if the Judaizers, these believers in Christ who are holding on to some of those old laws and rules, if they're right, if they're right about the way they're looking at the gospel, then Christ essentially is setting us free from the law to lead us to sin so that he can show us more grace, to show us how much more he loves us. Now, of course, that is true. God wants to continually show you just how much he loves you. But their argument, if they're right, is that he wants you to sin because of that. That's a dangerous way to think, isn't it? Here's point number two from this that I believe Paul's trying to take from us or take for us. If the Judaizers are right by saying that Paul's message of justification through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we reviewed, apart from works requires that we are all sinners, this makes Jesus the one who instigates it, the minister or servant of sin. In other words, Christ has made us sinners intentionally. So it's it's, it's thinking it this way, it's giving us a license to sin. God wants to give it to us that way. It's another dangerous way to think. See, because of this freedom in Christ, it would naturally cause us to sin more. That's the idea. That's the argument that is being made. And of course, you've already jumped it because you're thinking as you read through verse 17 and you're a believer, you're already 
at this Greek word right here. You're already thinking, no, 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 that can't be true. My Christ doesn't love sin. What do you know about Jesus and sin? What do you know about God and sin? You know the Old Testament. He hates it, doesn't he? You know from Proverbs that there are six things he hates, seven that are detestable. And by the way, slight, slight deviation. We had some good news from the Supreme Court this week, didn't we? And God said in Proverbs that one of the things he detests is the shedding of innocent blood. Mm-hmm. He hates that. And we got a little bit of a victory this week. Continue to pray for our states, though, as we go forward, making good decisions and tough decisions. But God hates sin. He doesn't want to see it. If he hates it, we should hate it, too. If he can't stand to see it, we shouldn't stand, be able to stand to see it. And remember, Proverbs eight thirteen: the fear of the Lord, this is what it leads to. The Lord is the hatred of evil. I hate it, too. So we know, of course, Meganeto, no, no way. This is the strongest Greek negative Paul could have used. We will see it a few more times today. In other passages, Paul uses it almost exclusively every time for this argument. Should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? Is that how it works? And he's trying to get across to you, of course we can't do that. Of course no, of course no. And as we think about this, I'm sure what came to some of your minds was James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. I'm sure as you sit, and I, I, as I sit listening to sermons and I hear passages given, my mind jumps to other ones. And that's not me doing that. Of course, that's the Holy Spirit within me and within you because you know the word and you desire to know it more. And here's what James says about this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Let no one say that. He's trying to tell you that doesn't happen. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. No one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, we know this about our Lord. Not only does he not tempt us. Now, don't misunderstand. Trials do come your way. Tests do come your way. God can use evil for his good. Ask Joseph. He'll tell you. However, God gives us a way of escape, right? As we consider 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that's, that's taken us but that which is common to man. And remember, as that verse continues, he always provides a way of escape. Not only does he not instigate temptation, but he helps you through temptation. Sin is our fault. Now, I came across a great quote on this that I think really sums this up well for us as we consider what we just considered from James. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says about this. I realize this is small, so I will read it to you. I better get my glasses for this. But I wanted to get it all because it's so good. Follow this. Follow Chuck Swindoll's logic here. Temptation is never prompted by God. God does not traffic in the realm of the immoral. It's not his game. He does not solicit us with evil thoughts. He does not lay us in a situation that we cannot get out of or say, aha, see, there, this shows that you really have an old nature after all. He doesn't do that. That sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Aha, see, the great accuser of the saints. Continuing on a little further on in this, James had at his disposal two ways of referring to God in James chapter 1, verse 13. Look at the words, I'm being tempted by God. His first choice was a little preposition that in the Greek is hupo, 
And in a particular setting, it means direct agency. So you could say, let no man say when he is tempted that God directly led me into that. But James doesn't use that, that option. He used apo, and that is indirect agency. Let no man say when he is tempted that God indirectly set that up. Don't say that, because God is not even indirectly involved in the setting of evil. You see what he's saying? Sin is not God's fault. It's yours. Mm-hmm. We've got to be very careful when we consider this. And if we consider the idea, is God making me sin so he can show just how great he is? No, no, no. He's the solution, not the problem. He's the answer, not the question. We have the problem, and we are the question. As a matter of fact, I always question, why me, Lord? Do you not? Why me? Why would you save me, a wretch such as I? I'm the question, but he's the answer. So we need to consider this as we go forward with this. Back to Galatians chapter 2. Okay? And we consider this, well, what is the purpose of the law? Why is it there then? Why are these rules there? Why are these precepts there? What is the purpose of this? I think to get an answer for this, it's a little walk through Romans would help. Now, you can do this in your Bibles. It's, it's going to be kind of chapter. I kind of put them in order. Um, so you can do that if you want. But I think Paul gives us a good understanding of the purpose of the law. Why do we have it? Because if the Judaizers are saying, we've got to hold on to all this, and some of these physical rules and laws, some of them man-made, some of them not. Are we to say then as Christians, ah, we don't need any of it? Mm, that's not true either. Look at what we see in Romans 3.20. I'll bring these passages up. Feel free to walk through Romans with me. Let your fingers do the walking for you yellow pages folks. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. I'm one of those folks, by the way. I don't have a cell phone, so I still require walking through the yellow page if they still have them. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But look at this. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Oh, here's some evidence. What's, what's the law good for? Tells us when we're wrong. Shows us the standard. What standard? Well, God's holy, perfect standard that nobody can meet. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Wicked and vile as we are, if we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know, would we? We would have no idea. We would think that we were doing just fine. Look at Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, to show me that I am a greater sinner than I thought I was. Now I, I know that you can relate to this if you've, if you've been in Christ a long time. I would guess that if I've talked to anyone who's been in Christ for, for a, 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 a certain amount of decades, you wouldn't tell, to, tell me honestly, you know, as I've walked with Christ... I've just found that I've become more righteous and more righteous and more righteous and more. I do more good things. And No, I would guess you're much like David, right? You look at yourself in the mirror, and these passages do this, by the way. I would say the next one in Romans 7 really shows us the mirror. But you look at yourself and you say, I'm worse than I thought. The more you walk with the Lord, the more you see who you are and who he is. And you glory in his presence. You, you're more thankful. You're, you're more worshipful. You're in more awe than you ever were before because you've read it here and you understand what you have missed. And you continue to miss. And that happens until you take your very last breath if you're walking with the Lord. If you're being honest about that. Look at that again. It increases the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see, 
It isn't that God is instituting sin in our life or instructing us to sin in our life, but when we study his word and we see our own lives in reflection of the word, we just see how much grace has been bestowed upon us. See, I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. I can't imagine if God gives me another 40 years, and I honestly don't want 40 more years, come Lord Jesus, but if he does, I can't imagine just how much more I will appreciate his grace in another 40 years can't imagine it. And some of you have lived that. You've felt that. This morning, uh, Isaiah referenced Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, David reflects on his view of the Word of God. And I love the fact that Isaiah had this in his notes, and I have it in my notes. But as I went through there, and even during Sunday school, I, my wife can testify, I was just marking these, I came across nine different times we're in Psalm 119, which is a big chapter, biggest one. He said, I love the word of God. I love the law. I love your precepts. Did David love them because it showed David how much more righteous he is than he thought he was? No. He loved them because it revealed his heart that he could repent of more and become more like his God. That's why. That's why he did that. So Romans chapter 7, let's look at this. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? Look at the same Greek term here, by no means, no, 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 no way. It's not sin. Yet if it had, been, have, had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known that it, what it is to covet of the, if the law had not said you shouldn't covet. Fill in your own blanks with whatever the law says. What's right, what's wrong is God's moral law, which never changes. And think about some of this moral law. So much of it is repeated in the New Testament refined and directly targeting you and me, isn't it? So much of this moral law, how we are to live our lives, that we fall short of it. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I saw more of it. For apart from me, the law, sin lies dead. So we see that this is a reflection of us. And you notice that Paul made it personal. He didn't say you. He didn't say us here. He really took this personal. Back to this text. Yet if, I had not been, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I think it's always dangerous when you sit in a sermon and you think to yourself, man, I sure wish George were here so he could hear this. Boy, Mary really needs this if she could have. I'm going to send this to her because now there's times where you want to send an encouraging message or something to someone. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But you see, we always take it personal when the Word of God is taught and preached. Even if it's somebody as insufficient as I teaching it to you, because I'm going to teach you and read to you God's pure and unchanging Word. So just think about that. That's very personal. And then God's purpose for the law. I love this passage. There's depth here. We're going to use John MacArthur to help us here in just a moment. But read Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Now before faith came... So Jesus, faith in him, his finished work on the cross that we talked about last week, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Sounds negative, right? Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. But look at this. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's a tough passage to consider. We may understand it on its surface level, but let's look at what John MacArthur says about this, and I think this really helps. I took this directly from his commentary, and I think it really helps. 
As a matter of fact, some of you might have this in the Bible in front of you if you have his commentary. But it says this, guardian, what does that mean? The Greek word denotes a slave whose duty it was to take care of a child until adulthood. The guardian escorted the children to and from school, watched over their behavior at home. Guardians were often strict disciplinarians, causing those under their care to yearn, listen to this, to yearn for the day when they would be free from their guardian's custody. Ooh, that's good. The law was our tutor, which by showing us our sins, was escorting us to Christ. Leading us to Jesus, to the Savior, who we desperately need. Who every man desperately needs, whether they realize it or not. That's what the guardian means. Is there a purpose for the law? You bet. Not to follow it to earn anything. Not to follow it for that. But to show us in that process of sanctification... As we walk with Christ, this progressive sanctification, why this is an unending, unending process in which we must put on these principles that Christ is teaching us. And so then Paul, in verse 18, back to Galatians 2, 18, says this interesting statement. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Hmm, that's interesting. So it's an interesting concept. If we look at this again, verse 18, I have 17 up there. If I rebuild what I tore down, destroyed is what that Greek word really means. I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, I'm proving myself to be somebody who's sinning even even more, even further, even greater. Because we need to consider this. What did Paul build up? Not just Paul, but remember who he's talking to. Who did Peter? what What message did Peter build up? What message did Barnabas build up? Any other disciples that happened to be there, followers of Christ, men who were preaching the, the gospel, women who were preaching the gospel to others. Here's what, it, here's what I think he's getting to. Paul, Peter, Barnabas, and all other true apostles and disciples had been preaching a gospel of grace by faith in Christ apart from the law. This radical departure from the form of Judaism that Pharisees and other Jewish leaders were teaching was essentially destroying the false hope that the Jews had earned salvation through following the law. And remember, John the, Bast- John the Baptist had to address this early on in the ministry. Remember, he was thinking in his head, you brood of vipers, talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, who think you can earn salvation through the law? And remember what he tells them. Very interesting. Don't you realize that God could take these stones and raise them up and make them sons of Abraham? You think it's in you? See, that's what he's, and remember, that, that preaching of, of John Mark, or John, uh, or John the Baptist, rather, that preaching of John the Baptist was, repent, the Savior's coming. Repent, here he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Live lives that are in line with repentance. That's what he was telling them, that this is a radical departure from what they were thinking. And the, remember, the danger was there were people trying to put this back into the gospel. So what does Paul believe? Paul believed he would be committing an even greater sin by negating all of this true, pure, clean doctrine of grace by faith in Christ. Oh, we don't want to do that. We should never do that. And so if we're doing that and we're, we're accepting philosophies like what the Judaizers were, were pushing, then we're, we're, we're deviating in a dangerous place, a very dangerous place. Back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, as we go through this. Galatians 2, verse 19. Here's what we see here. This believer's union with Christ. 
how we're connected with Christ. What an essential piece to what we understand about salvation. I considered and then took it out for the sake of time, spending a lot of time in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. So I would challenge you this week, after hearing this message, do that, read that, sink into that, dig into that, and look at what Christ prayed for you. Through space and time, through 2,000 years, having you in mind who he knew by name and considering how he wanted us to be one with him, one with one another, one with his word and the truth, bound in the truth. That's John 17, but we don't have time for that this morning. Here's what we see in Galatians 2.19. For for through the law, I died to the law so I might live to God. As believers, we are now separated from the law's penalty. Thanks be to God. Not just the penalty eternally, but the weight and the guilt and the pressure and the addiction to sin that was there before, that you and I once were, back to Ephesians 2 from last week, that we once felt. It no longer has a claim on our life. We're no longer a slave to that. We don't have that burden, that yoke. We have his, and his is light and easy. Thanks be to God for that. We've died to the law in that respect. We don't ignore it, but we are, we are no longer under its penalty. The justice of the law and our violation of it has been satisfied on the cross. Beautiful, amazing. Thanks be to God for that. But look at verse 20. Let's bring that up. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On the surface, this almost seems like a contradiction. And you might think, no, it doesn't. I hope you think that. That's good. That means you're thinking right. But on the surface, it may think that. Wait a minute. I have to live a certain way. I should live a certain way. I thought you just got done telling me the law I'm not bound to anymore. Mm, That's a paradigm here. There's a paradox going on. Paul says, no, no, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's no longer I who live, but God who lives in me, Christ who lives in me. So what do we know from this? When a person is justified by faith in Christ, they're spiritually united with him. There's something that's happened, and it is supernatural. I think we like to gloss over that a little bit. Just, just go back to that moment when Jesus saved you. Hmm, boy. You may have noticed some things about you that are different. I have a, a friend of mine who was a, a fighter pilot during Vietnam. And he is, I, of course, many of you know I have to, to schedule speakers for chapel. And he's, he's done a few chapels for me over the years. And kids really listen when they hear a guy that's talking about being shot down in an airplane and almost being caught by the enemy. It's, it's intriguing. But that's not what's intriguing about his testimony. What was intriguing about his testimony is he came to a service, heard the gospel, maybe a service like last week, where we heard for 45 minutes what God did for us 2,000 years ago, really before the creation of the world. And he said, it was funny. I didn't really know what happened to me, but the very next day I was talking different. I was thinking different. I was acting different, and I didn't understand yet. He was just a baby. But he noticed something was different about him because all of a sudden he was unified with Christ. The Holy Spirit was beginning to transform him. Justification had happened, and and sanctification happened as well, and it continues to happen. We're united with him and participating with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That means we're different. In Christ, his victory is the believer's victory as well. In the future and in today, 
right here, right now. Well, let's see what Paul says to the church in Romans for this. Romans 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, here's what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Back to that same argument. Same word, by no means. Of course not. Strongest Greek negative he could use. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Same thing he just said in Galatians 2. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, that's salvation, that is not indicating water baptism, although that certainly is something you should do if you're in Christ, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, notice this, might walk in the newness of life. That's not future. That's when? Today. You're a different man. You're a different woman. So I ask you to consider, do you remember when Jesus saved you? Do you remember when that happened? And I know some of you were young like me, but I remember it. And I'll tell you one of the most overwhelming things I remember about that is peace. Peace. I just knew. Comfort. We just sang, he, he's holding me. he holds me fast. I felt that. Oh, I'm not saying Christianity is about a feeling. If you work that way, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. But the Holy Spirit gives us comfort that we can get from nowhere else. Joy and assurance and hope that comes from no other venue, no other angle, no other drug, no other pleasure, no other sin. That is all. And you know it. And you were different. Walk in newness of life. There's something else going on here. Now, I've got to pause here. And I I thought about, actually, I had it in and I took it off. I was going to give you a slide that simply had a cartoon chicken and a cartoon pig. I didn't want to put it up there because you know how technology works. And I thought, most certainly, the live feed or the video, it'll freeze and it'll just freeze on this cartoon chicken and this cartoon pig. And people say, what is this guy talking about? But here's why I wanted to have a cartoon pig or a regular pig and a regular chicken, because I think they tell us a story. I want you to consider a very simple, a very simple bacon and eggs breakfast for just a moment with me. Everybody understands that. And here's what I'm going to try to use this, this simple breakfast to illustrate. It is an example for us, you and me, and especially as we consider our walk with Christ, about two different things, being involved or committed. Now, as we consider that breakfast, the chicken is clearly involved, right? We would all agree, got to participate a little bit. Those eggs have to come from somewhere. But the pig, he is committed. (laughs) Am I right? He's committed. He's all in. Well, let me just tell you something. That all-in proposition is what you're called to. Mm. You and I are called to that. Once again, I will not try to put on you some sort of a, a weight of, you better show him that. No, 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 no. No, no. Remember, if he's done this for you, if he has done this and he has saved you, you're a whole different man. You're a whole different woman. You're a changed human being. You're all different and you're all in because you know what he's done for you, because there is a newness of life. Look at some of these passages. What has happened to you at salvation? Ezekiel tells us this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, that's what we all had, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Talking about the Jewish people when they finally come to the realization that Christ is the Messiah. But that's true of you too. That Ezekiel passage is true of every believer. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. You're all in. You're a whole different man. You're a different woman. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're all different. You're all changed, not because of you, but because of him. And then further ahead in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what counts. The change of heart. See, when you hear about people who said, you know, they were Christians, but now they're not. No, they never were. You know, they never were. Because remember, Jesus doesn't lose any that the Father has given him. Not a one. No one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Jesus doubles down on this in John 6 and John 10. See, they never were because we know if you're in Christ, you're a brand new person. Oh, you will deviate. You will sin. That sin nature's still fighting. That's what we're going to continue to talk about today. But you're a different person. You're committed. You're all in. And as we think about this, being committed and not just involved, we're not just fans of Jesus. We're not fans. He is a great guy. Of course he is. He's more than that. He's God incarnate. As we heard this morning, your answer as my answer needs to be, and I will come back around to this at the end of this end of this sermon today is your answer better be when you say who do you say that i am you are the christ the son of the living god that is our answer for every question when we consider who is he i want you to turn to ephesians chapter 4 since we're so close when we're in galatians i didn't bring this up for the sake of of just letting you move around here keeping your attention galatians ephesians so they're one book apart Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I won't break this whole passage down, but I think it gives us a great example of what we're called to do now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Bear with me. Paints the picture for us. You'll notice in your Bible, these are not divine, but I like the title. Many of you will have a title right above verse 17 saying new life, new creation, something like that. That is not divinely inspired, but it does give us an idea. Here's what it says, starting at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Non-believers is what he's referencing. In the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. Notice, we have understanding and knowledge of our sin because of the word. We know that. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. I'm going to repeat that. That is not the way you learned Christ. If you're in Christ, you know that's not true. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That comes through reading Scripture, folks. That comes through talking with your Lord on a daily basis throughout the day, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off, put on. There is activity here, isn't there? Now, you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. It is not that your sanctification is all up to you, and you're just going to have to work it out and fight harder than everybody else. No, no, you've got the Holy Spirit working in you this whole time. Convicting, prompting, pushing, illuminating, showing, directing. But you must take part. You see, you have the ability to push this off, to grieve the Holy Spirit, to not listen, to continue in your sin, because he's writing to believers here. You see, he's writing to believers and challenging some that may not be. 
So we've got to look at it the same way. You and I, many of us, believers here, some of you may not be. You take this personal. Are you putting on, putting off? Are you making this an active, active part of your walk with Christ? Studying his word, considering his word, talking to others about his word, using others to refine you, ironing, sharpening iron, having accountability, having people who know you, pray for you, care about you, study with you, ask you tough questions. You ask them once, tough. Continually repenting, daily studying his word, putting it into practice. And this is also true. Often t- we've been going through 1 John in, in a, one of our Sunday school classes. 1 John 1, 9, you all know. This is to the believer. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think you know that's not getting saved every day. No, no, that's walking in the newness of life every day. You see that? That is talking with your Lord and talking to him about what you failed at and how you're going to get better tomorrow. Picking yourself up and going forward. We look at the life of David and quote him so often But when we look at David, that's a man of failed events, but a man of repentance, a man after God's own heart, who's willing to do all of the will of the Lord. And so this leads us into this next concept, freedom and responsibility. All right, we have freedom in Christ. Technically, we don't have to do anything to be saved because we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But what is our responsibility? Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God. Ooh, that's important. The will of God is something you ought to be in the business of, folks. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Boy, you just think about the lessons Peter has learned in his life, and we get a little bit of a reflection of that. I'm sure we don't get them all. But we know this message in Galatians 2 is right at Peter, isn't it? It's right at him. You're putting on a yoke that shouldn't be there. You know this isn't true. Peter's then reflecting, I think, here. I learned this lesson, and I had to learn some hard ones. And he, le- he learned several of them. But we live as servants of God. Is that not the key point here? Oh, yes, he saved you. You can't earn it, and you don't have to. But what are you now, walking in the newness of life? You're a man and a woman who owes him everything. You're the slave. You're the one who doesn't own themselves anymore. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. You do what he says. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So your freedom in Christ, you don't have to follow the law to be saved, but you have a responsibility to be a servant. What do we see going forward in Corinthians? Look at this. All things are lawful for me, Paul says here. This is a a section that he's dealing with sexual sin, but it's good for all. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I'm not going to be dominated by any of them. See, you have the right, even sometimes, now he's talking about legitimate, real sin in a person's life, but we can look at this. There are times where there's things you could do that maybe aren't sinful. They're on the border. That, but you need to think about why you're doing them. You need to consider, as we look at these other passages, are they helpful? Are they beneficial? Are they going to help the kingdom? Are they going to do and help me do, rather, the things I was put on earth to do? Back to what Peter says, the will of God. Is that what we're going to see? Look at 1 Corinthians 10, going through that. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Ah, there's another one. What are you here to do? Certainly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly live out a life that is worthy of the calling, but you're here to edify other believers. You're here to 
to help others become more like Christ too. Not just in this building, but outside of it. You're here to edify, build up, strengthen the church. And notice this, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And we think about this, Paul's giving two points just in one two-verse passage. Edification over gratification, number one, and others over self. The crux of Christian living. Others are more important than yourself. And look at Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Again, making reference to eating foods, sacrifice to idols, this struggle that was going on within the Jewish Christian community, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, this takes it to another level. So we think about, we have the freedom to do what we want, but remember why you're here. Think about your life. Are there times where you, need, you could give something up, should give something up, so that you just don't even take a chance at possibly allowing somebody to stumble? As many of you know, my career for the last 20 years has been teaching teenagers the Word of God. Now, the Bible does not forbid me from drinking alcohol. Drunkenness, absolutely. But I've made a choice. Because I, I have the freedom to do that, but I've made a choice. And I tell my students this, I tell them this. I said, listen, I choose not to ever drink and let people see that. And, you know, you're not going to see Mr. Johnson at the bar hanging out and, you know, being social with people at the bar. It's not a sin necessarily, but you're not going to see me do that. And they said, why? Because I, just in case, just in case, because they know I'm a Bible teacher, just in case, maybe they don't understand it all yet. I don't want them to stumble. Could I? Yes. Do, do I have to? No. Does it benefit or build up? Absolutely not. So can I give that up? You bet. That's one example. There are many others. Some of them much more difficult than that. Some of them much more specific than that. But here's what we see. There are situations in life where it's better to give up something for the sake of leading others to Christ. Never forget your mission. It's not for your gratification and your pleasure. It's for God's glory. It's for the gospel. So when we see this, when Paul, Paul's reminding us that we should not be dominated by anything. Nothing should take its, the precedence over God's will in your life. God's call for you in your life. He means that even non-sinful things can become sinful if we let them. They can dominate your life. Working hard is a good thing. Having a good work ethic, and it's an excellent principle. Can that be your God? You bet. Absolutely. No question about it. Being social and hospitable, that's a good thing. It's even called for us to do this in God's Word. Can that become a God to you? Relationships? You bet. Let nothing dominate you but the Word of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we begin, to, we begin to land the plane here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I think this gives us a, an idea here of what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at what Paul says. And we want to read this in light of what I'm going to show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 23. Look at how Paul puts this. I see, hear those pages turning, but here's what he says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. I want to remind you of Peter's words that are concurrent with this. They're right along with this. We are his servants. We're all in. He's become a servant to all, for all, essentially for the gospel. That I might win more of them. 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Mm. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in, that, in its blessing. You see what Paul's focus was? The gospel. Do you suppose that should be our focus too? The gospel, absolutely. Look at this example of this, and I think when we consider this, we look at Acts chapter 16, which we'll get to later on. This is maybe one of the greatest examples of this that I have ever seen. In the Bible, we have a very interesting situation in Acts chapter 16 that I think should ground us a little bit. We coming off of this Jerusalem council where they have made the establishment, which we've already heard preached, that you no longer have to be circumcised to be in Christ, that you never did, that that wasn't necessary for salvation. That's a physical thing. That was in obedience to God, but we no longer are putting that weight on someone's shoulders. But right after this, look at what happens. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the one he writes to in his word the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and look at this, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Whoa. He circumcised him because of the Jews? We just got done arguing, had a big council meeting, figured this all out. We don't have to be circumcised. Right after that, he takes Timothy, a grown adult man. Bear in mind, Timothy had to, have agreed to upon, uh, had to have agreed upon this, I would, I would think. We won't get into the detail, but I think he had to agree upon this. And he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wow. Now, in light of what we've just heard, freedom and responsibility, what is my goal? What should I be focused on, me or others, the gospel or my kingdom? His kingdom, my kingdom. Once again, John MacArthur gives us an understanding, I think, that helps. So why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? Was he compromising the issue, demonstrating inconsistency? No. Timothy wasn't doing it for salvation. He obviously had not undergone circumcision when he was saved. And he wasn't going, doing it to make uh, hardened legalists happy to tone down the offense of the gospel. He simply wanted to identify with the Jews so he might have an entrance to preach the gospel to them. Paul and Timothy were not hoping to pacify pseudo-Christian legalists, act the part of hypocrites, and migrate the gospel or mitigate the gospel in any way. They simply wanted to keep open lines of communication to the Jews they were going to preach to. This was not an act of compromise or men-pleasing. It was loving and physically very painful self-sacrifice for what? The sake of the lost. At all costs, I'm going to be all things to all people, not compromising morals, not compromising God's moral law, the, the, the law of Christ, but for whatever I can do, I'm going to be all things to all people, and if I think it's going to help, I'm going to do it, even at great sacrifice, even at great cost. And many of you understand that too, because that's happened in your life, but it's more than responsibility. It's more than that. Look at a few passages that I'd just like to go through quickly in John 14. What does Jesus say? You've heard this, by the way, this morning. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
John comes back to it in verse 21 of chapter 14. Whoever is my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered him, verse 23, skipping down a little further, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. This is not earning salvation. This is more than responsibility. This is evidence that you're in Christ. Because you love his word, and you keep it. And when you don't, you feel it. And you're convicted, and you change. This morning, we heard this taught so well. Check out the recording if you weren't here this morning. Isaiah did a wonderful job. First John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and what? obey his commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We love them. We love them. They're not burdensome because they're freeing, aren't they? They're not burdensome because they're the opposite of the weight we once had with the slavery of sin. We love them because we know the result of them, the fruit of them, is peace, contentment, and joy. We know it. We know them. We love them because it pleases our Savior and we were made for that. We know it. It's more than responsibility. It's something special. And then finally, more evidence. Chapter 12 of Matthew. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. That's what God's looking for, obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's what Samuel Samuel told Saul. And I have this incredible, incredible quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I'll bring it up here in a second, but I don't want you to read. I want you to listen to me for a second. Diedrich Bonhoeffer knows a little bit about sacrificing for the name of Jesus. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, if you know anything about his story returned to Nazi Germany when he, could, he didn't have to to proclaim truth in a place that was extremely hostile towards it. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is one of the heroes of the faith that understood, yeah, I know I've got it easy here. I could pro- proclaim the gospel in America. No problem. It's easy. But no, he went back. He decided to go back because that was where it was needed the most. That's where God called him for such a time as that. And he understood self-sacrifice and he understood He wrote a a pamphlet about cheap grace. And look at what he says. I know it's small, but I'll read it to you. This is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whose sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Yeah. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You take him out of it and you can bestow your own grace on yourself or other people real easy. When people invent ways to to pacify themselves when tragedy, death, Difficulty happens. They come up with their own religion. This is what they're doing. They will steal the word grace and apply it to themselves. That's cheap. People will walk in and out of doors of churches all throughout this country today and believe in cheap grace that requires no commitment, that requires no life change, that requires nothing but, ah, I love grace. I'm out. 
That's not the, what we're called to. Now, I didn't put this up here, but he continues a little further down this pamphlet and he contrasts it. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the, the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his own eye, which causes him to to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves all his nets and follows him. It's costly, and it's worth it. That's what we see. And then finally, what's the severity of legalism? Back to Galatians. Back to Galatians chapter 2. Look at what it says. Paul says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That means every time you've taken communion, it was just a show. That means every time you have prayed to the Lord and thanked Him for the sacrifice, you were just lying to God because it didn't really mean anything. Every time you have considered, every time we come across this in the spring and we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ, it's just walking through and playing through the motions for you. It means nothing. It was just a sadistic God doing a sadistic thing to his son. That you read Isaiah 53 and you say, wow, pleased to crush his son? That wasn't necessary. Why did he do that? That's what you do. If you nullify the grace of God, if righteousness, your own righteousness is enough, we're proclaiming that it doesn't matter at all. Here's what Hebrews says about this, this idea of legalism, how dangerous it is. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, the law following it, for under it the people received the law, what further need would we have for another priest? We know that's Jesus. Why do we need him? If I can do this myself, if it's possible, why do I need him to arise in the order of Melchizedek? And we've had that study as well. See, what this comes down to is a simple principle. And look at this incredible artistic rendering I just did. You guys like that? It's pretty good. It's about the length and breadth of my artistic skill. However, I want you to think about this. Sometimes people take pictures of stuff. You may not need to take a picture of this. You might be able to draw this yourself right in your notes. I stole this from Alistair Begg. He's, he's a good guy to steal from. Here's what he says. Here's our call as Christians, and I'm going to end with this. Here's your call. You hold the line. You hold the line. What's the line? Well, the line is the Word of God. Pure, untainted, unchanged, untwisted by men. The pure Word of God. And what do you find in the pure Word of God? The pure and unadulterated, untwisted, unstained gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you find. So what's above the line? Stuff you add to it. Jesus plus this work, that work, that work. This church event, that church event, this membership, that membership, this activity, that activity, Jesus plus. What's under it? Cheap grace. Ah, I don't have to do anything anymore. Jesus saved me. I'm just going to walk any way I want. It's a beautiful thing. Doesn't really matter. There really wasn't a huge sacrifice. The cost wasn't really that high. It doesn't really matter. I'm good with it, but it doesn't change me. No, we walk the line. We hold the line. It's our job to do that. What is the line? It's simple. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's the line. The line is simple. 
There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the line. You hold it, you live it. What's the line? There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That's the line. You hold it, you live it, you breathe it, it is your life. And when Jesus, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him. Wow, that's the line. You get to be the holder of the line. That artistic rendering is simple, but the concept is eternal. The concept is eternal. So what, who do you say that he is? Jesus asked you that question. Matthew 16, 16, Jesus is asking you that question. Who do you say that I am? Can you with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you know him, because he knows you, because he saved you, because you heard the gospel and you responded in faith, can you, can you say you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Can you barely say it because it makes you emotional? Can you eke it out because you know it's, it's all that matters? Are you like Thomas when you saw the resurrected Christ, my Lord and my God? That's the line. That's your life. That's my life. It's our time to live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the line. We thank you that you've taken the yoke, the slavery of sin. You've shown us our sin. You've given us the law. But thanks be to God, you have paid the price. You have been the propitiation. You became sin for us so we could have your righteousness. That is not in us, that is in you. But you've called us to a new life, a life that is in your son, a life that is different and changed and, and is, is desiring to please you and at all costs bring more into the fold. We know you've saved some this week in and amongst us. You may save some today here in this service and others throughout this, this country. We thank you for the freedoms that we have. We thank you for this incredible ruling this week. I pray that we consistently work to continue that, that good work that happened in, in Washington. We love you, Lord. I pray that you be with the people of this church. We love them. They love you. We love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.